What did we talk about last week? Questions. Questions. What kind of questions? Can you lose your salvation? Okay, if you commit suicide, will you go to, will you go to hell? What was the answer to the question of can you lose your salvation? No. We looked at Scripture. We looked where it tells us in God's Word the answer to that question. That was not just our opinion, what we thought, what we thought sounded cool. We actually looked at Scripture to see what it said. Now, one of the things I like about doing what we're doing here is some of the questions you guys put out there. For instance, tonight, one of the questions we're going to look at, and I just picked it because I thought it was a very interesting question, is the question, did God create unicorns and they just died out, or were they rhinos? Did God create unicorns? Now, now, that is, yeah, I know Hunter wrote that question right there. Can I kill one? That's Hunter. But here, here's, here's where that question comes from. Let me read this to you. In Job chapter 39, verses 9 and 10, in the King James Version of the Bible, it says this, Will the unicorn be willing to serve thee, or abide by thy crib? Canst thou bind the unicorn with his band in the furrow, or will he harrow the valleys after thee? That means in the King James Version, it says the word unicorns. That's what we're looking at tonight. Were there really unicorns? Now, some people have said there are no such thing as unicorns. Some people have said there were unicorns and they just died out. I actually, thanks to Pastor Ray today, found a potential answer to this question, and it's in the form of a song. So we're going to play that. I want you to listen to the words. They're going to be up on the screen. And if you'd like to, when it gets to the chorus, feel free to sing along because I think it's kind of a catchy tune. Go ahead and play that for us, Josh, if you can get that going there. There you go. A long time ago when the earth was green Sing it, Hunter. Than you've ever seen. They'd run around free when the earth was being born. But the loveliest of them all was the unicorn. It was green alligators and long neck geese. Some humpty like camels and some chimpanzees. Y'all are going to go home singing this tonight, some I know. Some rats and elephants, as sure as you're born. The loveliest of all was the unicorn. God seen some sinner and it gave him pain. And he says, Stand back, I'm going to make it rain. He says, Hey, Brother Noah, I'll tell you what to do. Build me a floating zoo and take some of them green, green alligators and long neck geese, some humpty back camels and some chimpanzees, some cats and rats and elephants, for sure as you're born. Don't you forget my unicorn. The front row is actually singing. <laughs> Old Noah was there to answer the call. He finished up making the ark just as the rain started falling. He marched in the animals two by two, and he called out as they went through. Hey, Lord, I got you green alligators and long neck geese. Some humpty by camels and some chimpanzees. Some cats and rats and elephants, but Lord, I'm so forlorn. I just can't see no unicorn. Then Noah looked out through the driving rain. Their unicorns were hiding 
playing silly games, kicking and splashing while the rain was falling. Oh, them silly unicorns, those green alligators and long neck geese, some humpty back camels and some chimpanzees. No pride blows the door, cause the rain is falling, and we just can't wait for no unicorns. The ark started moving, it drifted with the tides. The unicorns looked up from the rocks and they cried. And the waters came down and sort of floated them away. And that's why you never seen a unicorn till this very day. You'll see green alligators and long neck geese, some humpty back camels and some chimpanzees. Some cats and rats and elephants, which sure is your father. You're never going to see no unicorn. Okay, so have we answered the question now? Do you know what happened to unicorns? Okay, they floated away and died. Can, can we get a light turned on up here? All right, now I, I, I wanted you to see that because you know, obviously that's, that's kind of a joke, but at the same time, when it says something in scripture, we've, we've got to look into it. We've got to see, okay, is, is this something real? If, if God deemed it important enough to put into his word, what does that really mean for us? What's that? No, but the word unicorn is. No, that song is not in his word. No, no. Let me, let me clarify there. No, it's not there. It's not there. But here's the interesting thing. This question about whether or not unicorns really existed, it brings up another question. And it brings up the question of Bible translations. Because you see, I read it to you in the New King James or in the King James Version where it says, Will the unicorn be willing to serve thee or abide by thy crib? Canst thou bind the unicorn with his band in the furrow, or will he harrow the valleys after thee? But you see, if I jump over and read it from the NIV, the New International Version, same verses, here's what it says. Will the wild ox consent to serve you? Will it stay by your manger at night? Can you hold it to the furrow with a harness? Will it till the valleys behind you? And if I go over to the ESV, the English Standard Version, it says, is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind him with the furrow with ropes? Or will he harrow the valleys after you? You see right here, we've got three, three different translations of scripture. And we only see unicorn in one of them. So the question comes up, what about the different translations? And that's the question I want to look at first tonight, is why do we have so many Bible translations? Because if, if, if it says it right here, well, why do we need something that might say it a little bit differently? You see, most of you, if you've got, if you've got you know, a, a Kindle or an iPad or your phone or whatever, you're using a different Bible app, you've probably got access to anywhere between 30 to 200 different versions of the Bible right there. In my office, hard copies, I've got the ESV, the NIV, the NASB, the King James Version, the New King James Version, the NLT. I've got, oh, I don't even know how many versions I've got. I've got probably 10, 12 different versions just sitting on my shelf. So why do we have so many different versions of Scripture? Why do we have so many different versions of God's Word? And I want to propose this one answer to you. We have so many different versions of the Bible, so many different translations to help us fulfill the Great Commission. 
We have so many different ways of helping people understand who God is and what, what God's word says is to help us fulfill the Great Commission. And see, this, this translation thing, this has caused fights throughout history. You believe that? Different translations, people taking the Bible and translating it from one language to another has caused problems. Hundreds of years ago, the Church of England, they got so angry at a guy because he took the Bible and translated it into the English language so that the common people in England could read it. They were so angry at him that after his death, they dug up his bones and burned them, just to make a point. Just to make a point that, that they had the power, that they were the controlling thing. But see, this guy, his name was John Wycliffe. And what this guy had done is he took scripture and he, and he translated it into English. And after a while, the church started finding out what was going on, and they made it illegal to own these copies of the English translation of the Bible. So you had folks who were, who were reading scripture, who were understanding it, who were beginning to question things that they had always been taught by the church, who were actually connecting to God for themselves for the first time. You had these people who were so passionate about it that when it became illegal to own some of these things, they would actually go as far as memorizing an entire book of the Bible and then they would change their name to the book of the Bible. So that somebody came up to, to Grayson and, say, and Grayson said, hey, my name's John. If I knew that, I could go to Grayson and I know he could recite the entire book of John. That's how important it was. That's how important it was for them to have a Bible in their own translation so that they could understand who God was. And you see, that's why we have so many different versions of it today because it helps us sit down and it helps us fulfill the Great Commission. Let me read what the Great Commission says to you. It's in Matthew 28, 18 through 21. Hopefully you've heard this before. If you haven't, pay attention. It says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to always to the end of the age. You see, these different translations, all these different versions of the Bible, they help us do exactly what he's talking about there. In verse 19, where it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. In verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. You see, because language, the way that we talk is such an important part of culture, and no two cultures are the same. No two ways, no two people are, are the same in the way that they understand language and they understand the way that things are communicated. And as people have gone through the years, just, just so you kind of understand a little something here, when, when they translate the Bible, when they take the Bible and put it into a, a new version or a new translation, it is a very tedious process. Typically, you don't have somebody just sit down and say, I don't like the way it says that. Let me write something else. No, most of the time they'll form a committee. Hundreds of years ago, they would form committees and they would have oversight and they would have checks and balances and they would have ways to check what was being done. In fact, when they were still writing these things out by hand, they would have gentlemen who would oversee the scribes. And if there was one mistake, one little thing that was misplaced, they would take an entire scroll, an entire book and throw it away and start over because it was that important to make sure that what was being written down and what was being translated was accurate, so that what we have today we know is accurate. Now, there's a couple things that we need to look for in a good translation, because there's a lot of them out there. I want to tell you there's two different things that you need to know, 
And this, this is not in your notes. Before we get to that, there's two things. One's called a formal equivalency, and one's called a dynamic equivalency when we're talking about translation. The formal equivalency, equivalency let me tell you what that means. It basically means it's the way that the Bible's translated. When it's done in a formal equivalency method, it means that the, the translators are going word for word. They're looking at the original Greek and Hebrew text and translating it word for word to be as literal as possible. Now, the problem you run into there sometimes is that that can be kind of hard to read because you understand, you know, I may, I may know, say I know Spanish, I can come up and I can say something in Spanish, but if you say it that exact phrase in the exact word order in English, the English sentence may not make any sense. Or if you've ever taken Spanish, you know that the words in English, you've got to kind of mix them around a little bit to make it make sense in Spanish. You see, when you take that word-for-word -word translation, it's good for studying because it gives you a, a good picture of the original translation, but sometimes it makes it harder to understand when you're communicating and reading on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, the, the dynamic equivalency... What this does is this takes phrase by phrase. They might take an entire sentence. Instead of doing word after word after word, they'll take the whole sentence and say, okay, this sentence looks like this in English, or this sentence looks like this in Chinese or whatever version of the Bible you might be looking at. If you guys can read Chinese, I'd like to hear that sometime. But it's taking it phrase by phrase, a thought-for-thought thought translation. So what do you need to look for? First of all, I'm, I'm curious. I'm curious. How many of you have, say, a King James Bible? How many of you have an NIV Bible? An ESV? An NASB? A New Living Translation? How many of you have the message? Okay, see, we, there, see right, right here, we're going to talk about that in a second. Right here, there's all kinds of different translations right here in this room. So what do you need to look for in a good translation? Don't worry, we're going to get back to the unicorn thing in a minute. But what do you need to look for in a good translation? Here's the first thing. It should be based on the best Greek and Hebrew manuscripts. Okay? In almost every one of your Bibles, in the beginning, there's a little introduction that tells you about the translation of the version of the Bible you're reading. And it'll tell you what they looked at to make that translation. And we need to make sure that what we're looking at, what we're using to study, is based on the best, the most original, the oldest transcripts they can find, the most accurate ones, so we know that we are actually reading what the Word of God read when it was first written down. Second thing we need to look for, it should be based on the latest knowledge of languages and culture. It should be based on the latest knowledge of what we know about language as research is done, as archaeology is done, and people find more evidence about the way cultures existed back when Scripture was written, about the way language worked and some of the, the nuances and, and the way phrases were, were done back in those times. We've got to make sure that what we're looking at is based on that latest information. Because if it's not, say, say they went back and they found a Hebrew manuscript and got new information out of that, and we're able to give us a more accurate translation. But the translation we decide to use is based on information that was gained 200 years ago by something else an archaeologist found. Well, we may not have the most current thing. That doesn't mean that Scripture changes. It means we understand better how to interpret Scripture. We better understand how to translate Scripture based on what was going on in that culture at the time and the context with which those authors were writing it. So we've got to make sure that it's based on the latest knowledge of language and culture. The third one is, it should be accurate. That kind of goes into the first two. 
what we read, the version we, we read, should be accurate. That's why translations, they use committees to do this. They have checks and balances. They keep people from writing their own biases into what Scripture says. If you and I were to sit down, I bet if, if something happened in this room tonight, if somehow I got sick or whatever and I just passed out right here, and you all walked out of this room, I bet you there'd be at least five to ten different accounts of what happened right here in this room based on where you were sitting, what you heard, and what you saw. And see, it'd be the same way with Scripture. If we had a bunch of individuals just sitting down writing what they read, our own bias would bleed into that. Our own, our own background, our own experiences would start to change what that says. And that's why we've got to make sure it's accurate. We've got to make sure that, that, that committees have been used, that we don't have bias introduced by those people who are trying to give us a translation. And the last one is it should be understandable. If you're reading a translation and you cannot understand it at all, you might need to look at a different translation. That doesn't mean you chunk the one you have. That means you might need some help by looking at something else to make it more understandable. I've got a Bible. It's called the New American Standard Bible. And it's a good translation. It's one of those word-for-word, word, those formal equivalency translations. And I like it. It's a great Bible to study from. But I will not preach from that Bible. Because when you read some of the sentences, it, it, your tongue gets tied and, and the words kind of get jumbled and it's kind of hard to pick up the thought of what the Scripture is saying. So you've got to make sure that what you're reading, that, that it's understandable to yourself and the people that you're reading it to. So if you've got all these versions, which, which versions do you use? Let me, let me give you just a couple guidelines. My preference, and this is just my preference, it's not right or wrong like everybody else's. You're not right or wrong. This is just my preference. I choose the ESV because it's a very accurate translation. It's based on the most recent, the most accurate transcripts that they know of. And it's a little bit easier to read than some of the other versions. Now, the NIV is similar to that. Some people prefer the King James Version. They love the poetic language that's in there. And that's pretty cool. That's what I grew up on. I mean, I know the King James Version. I like it. But it's not the easiest to read when you get the thous and, and these and, and the different things. There's also the, uh, the NAS, which I just mentioned. It's good for study, but it might be a little bit harder to read sometime. Let me address the message. The message is extremely easy to understand, but it is a paraphrase of Scripture. It was done by a guy, not a committee. There wasn't a lot of oversight there. The, the, the message is a great companion to your Bible, but please do not let that be your Bible, okay? Because it is not based on the most accurate manuscripts. It was not done in a committee like some of these other translations, okay? So every one of us, we have a different translation that we like. Just know that your translation is an accurate one. Know that there were checks and balances when it was done. Know that it's based on the original Hebrew and, and Greek manuscripts. We need to make sure we check all these things out to know that we are actually looking at what the Word of God says now, just like it said those same things hundreds of years ago when it was actually written down. That's why I want to touch on that, because the Bible translations, we see it right here. We see that there's different words in these two translations between the New King James or the King James and the NIV and the ESV that we read. One says unicorn, the other two says ox. What do we do with that? How do then we answer that question? Were there such things as unicorns in Scripture? Well, I did a little research. 
And sometimes you, you have to do this. You have to step, you don't, you don't ignore scripture, but you have to step out and look at other sources too to see what things say. So I did this. Short answer, were there unicorns? We have no idea. It's not a good answer, but it's true. We don't know because scripture doesn't give us any indication other than what it says right here in these two verses. Now, if you go look at history and you look at archaeology, it's possible. I mean, think about this. There are other one-horned animals in the world, aren't they? We got rhinoceroses, however you want to say it, or the narwhal. Anybody know what a narwhal is? Yeah, I thought that was a joke the first time I saw one of those things, but that's a real creature. So God did create some creatures with that one horn, but did he create unicorns? Well, if you go back and you look a little bit further, we think about this. Is it possible like they said in the, in the song, which, how many of you like that song? Okay, go, go, home, go home and look it up. You can download it. You can put it on your iPod. It's, it's good stuff. Um, it's called the unicorn song. I don't remember who sang it. The Irish Rovers. That's it right there. That's right. I forgot to put down, I forgot to put down who wrote it. It's the Irish Rovers, the unicorn song. But they suggested that unicorns were real, but they got washed away in the flood with Noah. Okay. So did, did universe, did unicorns exist and they just died out? Well, think about it this way. Are there animals that we know at one time existed that are no longer around? What's that? Dinosaurs? Anything else? Dodo birds? Okay. Okay. I, I did a little research here. Listen to this. In the 18th century, there are reports from South Africa where, a guy, where, where, where historians describe rock drawings and eyewitness accounts of fierce, single-horn, equine-like animals. That means horse-like animals. Okay? From the 18th century, back in the 1700s. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying this is factual. I'm just telling you the information that's out there. In one of those reports, here's what one of those guys wrote. A single horn directly in front, about as long as one's arm, and at the base about as thick. It had a sharp point. It was not attached to the bone at the forehead, but fixed only in the skin. Okay, there's one possibility of something that could have been a unicorn. Doesn't tell us exactly what it looked like. Just tells us it had a horn. Okay, there's another one. There was a creature called the Elasmotherium. It's basically an extinct, it's, it's an extinct giant rhinoceros is what that is. That's just a big fancy name for it. Here's what this says. This says, <coughs> excuse me, make sure I read it right to you. It says, the Elasmotherium's 33-inch long skull has a huge bony protuberance, which means something sticking out, on the frontal bone consistent with the support structure for a massive horn. In fact, archaeologists, Archaeologist. There we go. I can say the word. Austin Henry Laird, in his 1849 book, sketched a single horned creature from an obelisk in company with two horned bovine animals. He identified the single horned animal as an Indian rhinoceros. So there's another possible explanation for this creature. There's another one. Assyrian archaeology. I can't say the word tonight. Archaeology. I actually wanted to be an archaeologist when I was in elementary, and I can't even say the word now tells us it could be an extinct animal called an oryx. Anybody ever heard of that before? It's in some science fiction literature. I've read it in books before. This was a wild ox known to Assyrians as a remu, is the word that they had for it. Now, the reason that that possibly 
The reason that some people think that's what might have been the unicorn is because if you look at the original Hebrew word, it's very close. It's, it's not spelled exactly the same, but it's, it's like pronounced rime. It's very close to that word, and that's why they think it might have been this animal and not this horned horse that we think of. But here's what it said about that. It says their horns were very symmetrical and often appeared to be as one in profile, which meant it had more than one horn, but when it turned in profile, it looked like one. It says fighting Remo was a popular sport for Assyrian kings. They've been extinct since about 1627, and they were huge bovine creatures. They were basically big cow-looking things. Julius Caesar, you heard of Julius Caesar, right? He described in the Gaelic Wars described it as a little below the elephant in size and the, the appearance, color, and shape of a bull. Their strength and speed are extraordinary. They spare neither man nor wild beast, which they have espied. Not even when taken very young can they be rendered familiar to men and tamed. The size, shape, and appearance of their horns differ much from the horns of our oxen. These they anxiously seek after and bind them at the tips with silver and use as cups at their most sumptuous entertainments. See, we've got all kinds of possible explanations for why the King James Version says there were unicorns. Do we know if they were real unicorns? We have no idea. If they did exist, they probably didn't look like the nice little fairy tale picture that we have now of a beautiful horse with a flowing mane and a horn. Okay? Simply because if we look at archaeological evidence, we've got other creatures that were not near as nice and pretty looking that could have been confused with what might have been thought of as a unicorn. But you see, here, here's the more important thing about that question. We don't know if there's an answer, yes or no, there. Scripture doesn't give us that information. But what it does show us is that we've got an incredible God that can create anything and some things that are beyond our imagination. For instance, we read from Job there. I want to read to you about 20 more verses and bear with me but there's another section in Job that talks about a creature that we don't see around today. It's in Job chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 1. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or piece his jaw with a hook? In verse 9, behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his goodly frame. Who can strip off his outer garment? Who could come near him with a bridle? Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth is terror. His back is made of rows of shields, shut up closely as with a seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. His sneezings flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches. Sparks of fire leap forth. I read this, I'm thinking dragon. But we don't know, do we? It keeps going. Verse 20, out of his nostrils come forth smoke as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals and a flame comes forth from his mouth. In his neck abides strength and terror dances before him. The folds of his flesh stick together firmly, cast on him and immovable. His heart is hard as stone, hard as the lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. At the crashing, they are beside themselves. 
Though the sword reaches him, it does not avail, nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He counts iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee, for him sling stones are turned to stubble. Clubs are counted as stubble. He laughs at the rattle of javelins. His underparts are like sharp potsherds. He spreads himself like a threshing sledge on the mire. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. Behind him, he leaves a shining wake. One would think the deep to be white-haired. On earth, there is not his like a creature without fear. Anybody ever seen that animal? Champ. What's that? Champ. Champ. Has seen that animal? Really? Do we know that for sure? So here's what, uh, this is what I'm saying. There's things that we find in Scripture, guys, that we don't know anything about. We have a God that is that creative, that is that incredible, that is that powerful, that can create things that our mind can't even comprehend sometimes. For instance, Josh, show some of those pictures that's in that slide right there. Can you, can you guys see this? Can you turn this light up here off for me? Do, do you see what's up here? Prior to, night, prior to 2008, prior to 2008, there was a team of scientists who went up to Antarctica and did some search out there in the sea, and they found hundreds of sea creatures that until 2008... We had no idea existed. We'd never seen them before. Keep scrolling through. Show some more. Show some more of those. Some of them are big. Some of them are little. Yeah, it looks kind of like a spider crab, doesn't it? It's kind of creepy looking. But those are all animals. Keep going. There's more. It looked like Blackbeard or what's his name? No, not Barbosa. Davy Jones. It looks like Davy Jones. That little thing right there with his beard. But look at these. Look at these animals. How many of you seen Finding Nemo? You remember that fish with the light on its head? That's what that looks like to me. Except the light's on its chin. We got one more. Show the next one. Look at those things. It, it, it's, they believe it's related to a barracuda, but it's not the same thing. You see, guys, guys, if you look at this, it's, it's got like a silver skin. If you look at these pictures, until what's just about three and a half years ago, we, as humanity, had absolutely no idea that those things even existed. Guys, the point is, listen to me, even though Scripture, even, even when we can't find a definitive yes or no in Scripture, it gives us a broader understanding of who God is. It takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 where it says God created the heavens and the earth. And yes, there's a lot of things that we've seen, a lot of things that, that we get the picture and we, we assume it's just there because we see it every day or we've seen pictures of it more than once. But the reality is we have got a God who is so much bigger than we are, who is so much more powerful. And you can look around this room and see how much more creative he is than we are. Who's to say he couldn't create certain things that we don't think are possible? We don't know that. But it helps remind us who God is that we serve an amazing, a powerful, incredible God, a God that is so much more than we could ever hope or dream to be, and he chooses us to have a relationship with. That's amazing, guys. That's incredible. So do we know anything about unicorns? Not really. Nothing more than we did before we started. 
but I just wanted to give you some information about what's out there. Are there always yes or no answers in Scripture? No, we talked about this last week. There's not. But they do point us to who God is. All right? Those are the questions I had for tonight. Now, do any of you have questions? Because I told you last week if we had time, we'd open it up again. Anybody have questions that you want answered tonight? Do you think there are dragons or were dragons? Do I think there were dragons? My imagination reads that in Job and says yes. Do I know that for a fact? I have no idea. Can I, can I, can I put that in concrete somewhere? No, because I don't know. I would like to think there were. It'd be pretty cool. There were dinosaurs. Why couldn't there be one that could breathe fire? I don't know. There's no way to answer that. I mean, there's no way to answer that definitively. Anybody have any other questions? Yes. When people are in a coma, like, are their souls still there? When people are in a coma, if they're, if they're still, if their body's still living, breathing, they're not dead. So their soul is still there. Your brain's not your soul. That's your body. Your body's still living. Just because you can't think, that doesn't mean your soul has departed. If I had a dragon, I have no idea. Sparky, I don't know if I, I don't know what I would name a dragon. It's a dragon. What, how can you name a dragon? You'd na- yeah, you would name him Buddy. Yes. During the tribulation, can people get saved? During the tribulation, can people get saved? Uh-huh. Scripture doesn't really give us that answer, does it? What's that? What's that? Oh, come on now. You got an answer. You got an answer. It talks about the 144,000. I'll be honest with you. I haven't done enough research and revelation to give you a factual answer on that. I haven't. And there's a lot of prophecy and revelation that, that we try to understand, but we don't necessarily know. We're going to go with ladies first, and then we'll do yours. What happens to the kids that are born in the tribulation? What happens to the kids that are born? How do you know kids are going to be born in the tribulation? What's that? If they were, well, then the, the question comes, can people be saved during the tribulation? That goes back to the original question. Pastor Perry, you looking it up back there? You got an answer for us? Okay, all right. Pastor Perry's looking that up. He, he knows it better than I do. Justin. All right, so we were talking science today. Do you think life support is, like, against God? Against God? Yeah, like, it, like he's trying to take you and you're on life support. Okay, that's a good question. That, that runs in. Did you guys hear the question? He's asking about life support. If you've got somebody who's brain dead and they're put on life support, is that against God? Is that what God wants to happen? You get in, there you get into the issue, the issue of sanctity of life, okay? How does God value life? Does God want people to be alive? Okay, he gave us life. He talks about sanctity of life in scriptures. We look at it all throughout scripture and we talk about issues like abortion and mercy killings and things like that. God tells us to value life. He shows it to us over and over in scripture. Do I think it's against God? I don't know because I don't know God's mind. I know scripture tells me, scripture tells me that God values life. Who am I to play God? Right, that is different. It's just removing intervention that's keeping their heart beating and allowing nature to take its course with the body. Yeah. That's not, that's not the same thing as euthanasia. Right, exactly. It's, it's different. Can you put somebody on life support? You can. If God wants them to live when you take them off, they'll live. If he doesn't, they won't. 
God's the one. Hey, God's the one that determines when we die. Now, does He use modern medicine to extend that life? Sometimes, yeah. He's the one that made man to be able to figure these things out to discover what God's already given us the ability to do. So we use it sometimes. Okay, I got a lot of hands raised now. Oh, let's let's start where uh, since I'm already over here, then we'll move that okay, way. We'll go back to um, Lauren's question, but I thought it said that babies if they die don't they go to heaven since they don't know yeah that gets into the age of accountability is there is there a certain age is there a certain age where you become aware that you are a sinner and the question is is that the same for everybody what do you think no okay okay She's talking about kids, not people who've never heard. That's addressed in Romans. Okay, that is really loud. If you, if you read about the account of David when he and Bathsheba, remember Bathsheba? You know, they had yeah. a baby and the yeah, baby died. Well, in some of David's like mourning and lamenting about that, he talks about how he'll see the baby in heaven and that's where that belief comes from that is something in scripture that because the baby never had a chance and was not even able to be aware of sin then that would be something that God would cover but again that's not like a hard and fast you turn seven now you're mm -hmm. gonna go to hell if you don't hurry and get saved it's it's a it's an awareness of sin that's but what you to be able to be saved you have to be aware of sin so that's gonna be different for each child because that gets into people question right. about like the mentally handicapped and things like that but at some point, there's also the stuff in Romans that talks about how even creation's enough to make us aware mm -hmm. that there's a God and all. So that's why God gets to decide. Yeah, he, he gets to answer those questions. We do, we do have an understanding that that's probably what happens because of the David and Bathsheba story. But we don't know exactly when that is. We don't know what point in time that is for each individual to know, okay, if you died at six, you're going to heaven. If you died at six and... 10 months, you're going to hell because now you know you're a sinner. We don't know where that line is. And Scripture doesn't tell us precisely. What's that? They're old enough to know what sin is, but they've never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? Scripture tells us in Romans that creation is enough to make us aware that there is a God, that there is something out there, there is somebody out there bigger than us. And it also talks about, we talked about last week how we can't come to know God unless He works in our heart and draws us to Him. So if that's never happened, and they've never heard the gospel, if you cannot get to God without Jesus Christ, and they've never heard that, but they know that they're a sinner, they know there's things, you know when you're doing wrong as a kid. There's a certain point in time you know you're doing something you shouldn't do. Again, that's different for everybody. We don't, it's, it's, it's an answer that's not comfortable, but it's it's an answer that we just we don't know the reality of it. Yeah, not not hearing is not an excuse. You're still lost. You still don't know Christ. That's why we have a responsibility to take the gospel of Christ as far and as fast as we can because there are millions of people who have never heard. But not hearing is not an excuse. Hunter. What about babies that are like miscarriage? Like that haven't been born yet? Would be, be a similar situation as we talk about the David and Bathsheba. Well, that baby was born. When does when does a baby become a baby? At the point of conception. 
So it's still a baby. Whether it made it out of the mom or whether it didn't, it's still a baby. According to what we see in the story of David, that child would go to heaven. So everybody can come on, just ask. Okay, so we were having this really big debate. Hey, listen up, guys. We were, no, please don't. Please don't. Okay, we were having a big debate today about like doing the wrong thing for, for the right reasons. Does that make it right? It does, what does the Bible say about that? What does it say? Get um, out of here. Today we were reading uh, Abraham Lincoln's like biography part of it, and he manipulated people in the government to help save the Union. Mm-hmm. Is that doing – or he manipulated them and went against the Constitution, which is the wrong thing, so he could save – the union, which I guess is the right thing. Okay. Does that make it right? That 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 question goes to our view of authority, which we've talked about. It goes to our view of authority and how we interact with authority. If we decide based on based on scripture, not on our own opinion or our preferences, but if we decide based on scripture that we need to break a law or we need to defy an authority, we can do that. But we also have to be willing to accept the consequences from that authority because it tells us that every authority is God-ordained. Every single one. Grayson, I just took your answer, didn't I? Okay. There you go. Nicole. What if, what if I knew that you were going to lie? You had a gun and you were going to kill all of us, and I decided, well, I can kill him, and then he won't do that. Is that right? Because it says, thou shalt not kill. It doesn't matter if it's in self-defense. Thou shalt not kill. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Did, did everybody hear her question? I want to address a statement you made. Where does it say, thou shalt not kill? No, it doesn't. It says, thou shalt not murder. Is there a difference? God was, God was responsible for killing a lot of people, wasn't he? Scripture doesn't say thou shalt not kill. It says thou shalt not murder. Actually, Christ said, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Okay. I love this. Man, you guys, y'all, the questions are coming now. Guys, what you're doing right now, pay attention. And I know all the side conversations are starting and other questions being addressed. This is what we're supposed to do. This is what we as Christians, when we look at Scripture, we are supposed to take what we know about God and what we understand about God and engage the culture and these hard questions with what Scripture says. And sometimes there is not a clear-cut, easy answer. It's just not there. Other times there are, and in those areas, we better take a stand. We have to take a stand because if we don't, everybody else is going to, and God's going to be shut out. In those areas we don't understand, that's where we get into the systematic theology we talked about last night. We look at the, or last week, we look at the entirety of Scripture. And even though we may not have a definite yes or no answer from one verse, we can look at the way God interacts with His creation throughout all of Scripture, and we can understand how God wants us to interact with His creation now based on what He did then. That's why these questions are great, and we've got to ask these questions. Is it wrong for you to not tell everybody that I've got a gun and I'm going to kill them all? I would think it was wrong if my kid was in the crowd. Does Scripture tell me, hey, you had to say something? No, it doesn't say that. But then we get into, is it's a moral, ethical decision there. And ethics are different for everybody, unfortunately. When we die, will we remember stuff in heaven that happened on earth? 
That's a good question. Does scripture, hey, wait, does scripture answer that question? Where? It didn't say he recognized him or remembered him, though. Will you remember everybody when you get to heaven? Is that what you're saying? Will you remember what happened? Right. So will you hate them in heaven? No. Question answered. No. Okay. <laughs> Possessions? I know. I mean, the verse, the way you read it, it would lend itself to, to be talking about possessions, not necessarily everything. Yeah, Kathleen said it, it talks about how moth and rust will destroy all those things that we had. It doesn't necessarily address our memories, our interactions. Now, what we do know about heaven is that when we get to heaven, what is our focus going to be? On Jesus, on God. So even if we do remember all those things, those things aren't going to matter because we're going to be in front of our creator. We're going to spend eternity with the angels worshiping God. So even if you do remember that guy that knocked you in the back of the head in second grade and made you fall down and drop your ice cream, it's not going to matter anymore. You're not going to care. You may have that memory, but even if you do, you're not going to care anymore. Again, Scripture doesn't answer that question exactly. We're going to talk about that a little bit next week because I had one question is how are relationships going to work in heaven, like marriages and family. We're going to talk about that next week. I'm not answering that tonight. We're talking about it next week. Yes, ma'am. I've, I've heard that too. I've seen movies where we, you remember everything. The reality is we've got to take what we hear and look at what Scripture says because that's what's going to define what heaven's going to be like. And there's some things it tells us. There's some things that it doesn't. We can only go on what we can see in His Word. Anybody else? We've got time for one more question if anybody's got one. Will God answer our questions in heaven? I hope so. Scripture doesn't tell me he's going to have a Q&A time like this. What? That's, that's why in, in Scripture, and I can never remember the reference, but there's a verse that talks about that there are certain things that are God's mystery and they are for him, that, that we're not going to know those things because our brains can't even comprehend the things that we have learned about God half the time that there's all kinds of things that we don't know, but it does tell us when we get to heaven that our knowledge will be complete. Is that knowledge about, did he make unicorns? Did he make dragons? Did he do all those things? I don't know. But I believe that knowledge, that means our knowledge will be complete about him and we'll know who he is fully at that point. Okay, we're gonna stop now because y'all are getting way off track. All right, guys, next week, listen up. Next week, we're going to address the relationship question. We'll address at least one more that one of you submitted.